I love that. So good. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And today we come to the part of the creed which acknowledges the church in all its diversity, its Catholicity. The part where we say, I believe in the church. Up until now, the creed has been an invitation to trust in what you can't see. Even though we sang earlier, I can see you now, referring to the Lord. That requires spiritual vision, the gift of faith. In fact, we cannot see God the Father or Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit like we can see each other. But the church is not invisible. Right? You knew where to turn off of Devere Drive to get here, but that's the building, not the real church. The church is the body of Christ, and we are members of it. Look around you. It's here. You could pinch it. You could pinch someone sitting near you. These are real people all over the place in this room but maybe don't pinch them, actually, now that I think about it. (laughs) Okay, so the church is visible, but at the same time, the church might be the hardest thing to believe in. The creed calls the church holy. How often do we see evidence of that? Do people outside of the church see us as Christians that way? Well, maybe holier than thou, but... I don't think holy, if they even understand the meaning of that word. When people say they're spiritual but not religious, and we hear that a lot in our culture, I think what they're really saying is that they believe in God or a God, but they don't believe in the church. Can we blame them? I've heard plenty of criticism of this claim to be spiritual but not religious, from church people, that it's an easy excuse, it's a way to avoid commitment. But I feel strongly that our first response should be to readily admit that people have good reasons for not believing in the church. And yet, there is hope. There has to be hope when belief in the church flows right out of the story we've been following over these weeks as we've worked our way through the Apostles' Creed, the story that begins with God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and continues with Jesus, his only Son, his birth, death, and resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of faith and makes us fruitful. And there's hope that pours into the church from that earlier part of the Creed. If the church's one foundation is truly Jesus Christ, as we sang earlier, then there has got to be hope. Now, this question of the church, it's a huge topic, and there's so much we could say about it. Maybe I'll ask you rhetorically, what passage in the Bible would you choose if you had to choose only one part of Scripture to sum up the church? If someone said to you, maybe a friend at work, a fellow student, your neighbor, so what does the Bible say about the church? 
What, what page would you turn to? Or maybe you yourself, when you are disappointed by the church, when you need to hear personally the hope that God offers to his church, where do you turn to look for those promises? Well, Allison gave us a quick look at Acts chapter 2 last Sunday, which is this incredible vignette of the early church in Jerusalem. And we're going to look at that passage in depth this Saturday at Courtright Connect. And I'm going to plug Courtright Connect a couple of times during my sermon because it's almost like we planned it that this Sunday we'd be talking about the church and then on Saturday we would have this two and a half hour seminar where we get to really dig into what the church is, what our vision is for this congregation, where we come from, where we're headed, where we believe the Spirit's leading us. Um, today, we're going to hear from Jesus. And we're going to look at three images that Jesus gives us for church. The first one is gardening. The second one is fishing. And the third is shepherding. These were very everyday realities for the people that Jesus was speaking to. Maybe not as much for us, but it's critically important, I think, that we see that Jesus was saying, this plays out Monday to Friday. This is not a once-a-week experience. You are the church in your gardens, in your jobs, in your vocation, in your church ministry. So I'm going to read three passages to illustrate these pictures that Jesus gives us. And I'm going to start with John 15. And then later in my sermon, I'll read two sections from John 21. But first, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we need your power this morning. Without you, these are just words. This is just teaching. It's empty. But in your power, the preaching of the word brings life. And so we pray that you put open our eyes to your scriptures. Make them come alive for us. Move us. Change us. Revive us. Send us out of here reminded of all that we have and all that we are together in you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So reading from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. Jesus said to the disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, 
showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine, we are the branches. That if we remain in him, some older translations say abide in him, we will grow and bear fruit, but that apart from him, we can't do anything that really matters, that really lasts. So the first thing we learn about the church is that we are one with Jesus. We are united to him. And that is the only reason we can call the church holy. We're grafted onto Jesus. You know what this word graft means? If you're a gardener, maybe you've done it before. Maybe you've grafted a plant. It means you take one plant, a branch, say, and you join it to the base of another plant. So here's a picture of some grafted shoots. You can see all the life bursting up out of them. And this next picture shows you how to take a scion, a branch, and join it to a rooted plant. I love the instructions, the vocabulary. It's like this, this world of gardening that you and I maybe aren't familiar with, but it's like wizardry somehow. This next picture shows the life that comes out of the base, the root, the trunk. Without being united with that base, with that foundation, those branches would have died. But the grafting renews them by joining them to a source of life, rooted in the soil, and so they grow and flourish. Jesus says, remain in me. And that implies that we're not passive in this. But also, because this is so organic and clearly does not come from us as the branches, it's nothing we can accomplish. Again, Jesus alone is the source of our holiness. We are clothed in his righteousness, to use a different metaphor. And our new life, the life we need, eternal life, life beyond the drudgery of this life, the spiritual transformation we need, it comes from him. I love the hymn we opened the service with this morning, The Church is One Foundation, and the line where it says, And she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, is breathtaking to me. It's a profound mystery, a mystic sweet communion, as the hymn puts it, and it comes only by grace. 
by God's willingness to invite us into his relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know I love church history if you've been around Courtright for any length of time, and I know that I'm bringing you with me in that. I'm nurturing the love of church history in many of you, am I not? Okay. (laughs) That was real Presbyterian enthusiasm there. So here's another horticultural image that illustrates church history and this same point, that we are built on the foundation that is Jesus, that we are branches that come out of the trunk that is Christ. And you can see all the various Christian groups and denominations over history are the branches to this tree, if you can make out those words. And in the middle there, you see the Holy Catholic Church referenced. At the base is Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew from the house of David. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and the Holy Catholic Church is born. You see some dates. 1054, you might not know that one, the first great split or schism in the church, and then 1517, the one we celebrated last week on Reformation Sunday. Although I often wonder if celebration is really what we should be doing, more remembrance, I think. It's important as we learn about the creed to understand that the word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Catholic originally meant, and still means, universal, small-c Catholic. So the Catholic Church is the whole Church of Christ. Every denomination, every country, every language, as we illustrated in our reading of the Creed earlier, in every part of the world, through all of history, not limited to our time and space. And Jesus makes that possible, that Catholicity, that union. We have our differences, but we are united in Christ, one holy Catholic church. And again, if you're interested in learning about some of these branches and the words and the history they represent, come out on Saturday, 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. for Courtright Connect. Where do Presbyterians come from? We hold loosely to that around Courtright, but the reality is we come from the Reformed tradition, which is rich. I talked at the congregational meeting we had last week about the Anabaptist tradition. Well, if you're a Baptist in background, that doesn't mean you come from the branch that is Anabaptist. These and other mysteries shall be revealed. In the end, the Apostles' Creed reminds us of all that we have in common. It should do that and how we can work together. So how do we practice this? How can we be like a plant? Well, Jesus says, by remaining in his love, abiding in him, letting his word nourish us, and by loving each other. And then he says something incredible. He calls us friends. The God of the universe, in all glory and majesty, whom we should worship and obey who appeared in fire, in power, in in a way that terrified people we read in the Old Testament. He comes close to us in Jesus. 
And he no longer calls us servants. He calls us friends. He says, after the resurrection, most of all, Jesus says, do not be afraid. And Jesus defines friendship as laying down your life for your friends. We're going to come back to that. In verse 16, we have this incredible promise. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think whatever I ask in the Father's name, really? I've tried that a few times, and I'm not sure it worked out like I was hoping. I've learned a few things about gardening in my life, mostly from my mother and my mother-in-law. One key principle is that it takes time. When we moved to Courtright, we'd just gotten our small backyard in downtown Toronto to the point where we were really happy with it. That took 10 years. And after 12 years in Guelph, we're not close to being satisfied with our garden. It takes time for plants to grow, time for them to bear fruit. You have to be patient or it will not come ever. And growing together as the church requires what one of my teachers at Regent College, Eugene Peterson, used to call passionate patience. We learn to actively love each other, to weed and to trim shoots that aren't going in the right direction, to do that for each other, to offer wisdom, hope, guidance, you prune a plant so that it can stop wasting its energy, so it can be fruitful. God does that for us as we are honest with one another in the church. And it takes daily care, it takes nurturing each day for a plant to grow outwards, to help it move towards the light. God calls us as his church to a long obedience in the same direction. I love the way Reinhold Niebuhr put this. He wrote, Nothing worth doing is accomplished in our lifetime. Just let that sink in for a moment. Nothing worth doing can be accomplished in your whole life. And so we need hope. Nothing true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate moment in history. And so we need faith. Nothing of real value can be accomplished alone. And so we need to love each other, to remain together, to abide in Jesus. God promises to use his church to accomplish amazing things. Each one of us has a role to play in that. When we believe in the church, when we say the creed and God gives us the faith to have the conviction, when we tend to the church daily, the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see the fruit that is coming, that will come. God also calls us to go fishing. So let's read from John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Just notice all those names. Why list them? Why not say all the disciples? There was a bunch of disciples in the boat. They're listed. 
by name, even by origin. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even so, many, even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When Jesus first called the disciples at the beginning of the Gospels, we read about this. He saw them fishing, and he went up to them. He didn't know them yet. He went up to them, and he said, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. As he said that to them, he was giving them the purpose of the church. Now, if you've grown up in Christian circles, you may know, and we sometimes assume, that fishing for people is the same thing as evangelism, that we are called to hook people, that we are called to catch them. Let's just pause and enjoy that. No, that's, that's not loving towards your fellow Christian pastor. Just keep going. It is kind of hypnotic, though, I admit. Time for a sip of water, maybe. <sighs> Is God telling us something? Okay, there we go. So fishing for people. If you have a church background, you probably equate this with evangelism. But it's actually way more than that. That's not what Jesus is really getting at here. You can think of it this way. When you catch fish, you actually take them from one world into another. And that is the picture Jesus is giving us here. You bring them out of the darkness of the waters into the light. Yes, I know that fish need water to live. <laughs> and this would kill them. But please work with me here. Jesus offers new life, so it's, it's a special case. So in the ancient world, the sea represented a world of darkness and chaos and death. And as the disciples reflected on this, both the image that Jesus gave them at the beginning of their ministry together of being fishers of men, and then here, after the resurrection, the experience of this miracle of catching so much fish, they would have realized that he was saying, when you fish for people, 
you are taking them out of that darkness, out of the chaos and the despair that the sea represented in that culture. You are bringing a total transformation into their life. They have a new ruler in a whole new kingdom. It's a place where they live. It's about their whole lives. It's not just an individual relationship with Jesus. It's a society. And so as the church, this is our vocation. This is our purpose. We're called to be a city on a hill, a different kind of society, a place where God's goodness is growing and flourishing. So one example of this is that we're called to use sex and money and power differently than how the world does. So in the world, sex these days is viewed as something pretty ordinary. But when it comes to money, people take that very seriously. They grasp for it and they hold it tight. They want more of it. On the church, in the other, in the church on the other hand, we are careful with sex. We guard it. We consider it extraordinary. Sometimes we call it sacred. But when it comes to our money, we're loose with it. We give it away. That's part of Jesus' command to love others. In the world, power is used for self-interest, to get what you want. As Christians, we are to use power not primarily for ourselves, but to serve others, for the common good, for the peace and prosperity of all, to seek justice for those who are oppressed. We look around at our society and we see how divided it is. The church often is also. But it shouldn't be. We are called to unity. Look at who was in that boat. Thomas and Nathaniel are both there. Thomas was the skeptical guy, doubting Thomas, we sometimes call him. He always wanted proof. On the other hand, Nathaniel believed right away when Jesus first called him, maybe too quickly. Nathaniel is a little naive. Thomas is jaded and cynical. Nathaniel's and Thomas's do not get along in the world, but they were in that boat together. Or think of John and Peter. John is a thinker, the disciple Jesus loved, a theologian. You know that if you're familiar with his gospel. Peter, on the other hand, was a man of action. So John figures out first that it's Jesus on the shore. But what does Peter do? Peter acts. He jumps into the water. Peter takes the initiative. John wants to reflect on it, study it some more. The Johns of the world might make a motion to refer the matter to a committee. Peter would never second that motion. Peter wouldn't be in the room. The Peters and Johns of the world have trouble getting along together but they're in that boat together. Only thanks to Jesus who brings us together. We're different and we disagree, sometimes even to the point of conflict. But it's the Lord who establishes his peace among us. He's building his body and every one of us has a role to, to play in that. And it's no accident that the next line in the Apostles' Creed is the forgiveness of sins, right? The church comes up and immediately forgiveness is the next breath. From gardening to fishing, we come to shepherding. Let's read John 21, 15 to 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. When Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs, he's redefining relationships for us in the church. He's calling us to his kind of friendship. We saw earlier that he has called us friends. We're no longer simply servants. What he's saying, first of all here, is that it's not about you and what you get to eat. Sometimes I hear people saying, well, I'm not really being fed by the church. You ever heard someone say that? I don't really feel like it's feeding me. Let this lay that to rest. Jesus says, I want you to feed others. It's not about you and what you get to eat. The second thing Jesus is saying here is that he's asking us to reconsider who our friends are. Do you insist on choosing your friends or are you willing to allow God to direct you to places where you might not expect to go in terms of relationships? My lambs, that's how Jesus describes them. He invites us to be open to the Holy Spirit and to let the Spirit guide us to people he's sending us to. He knows what's good for us. We often don't. So that's the second thing. He's asking us to reconsider our friendships. The third thing is that they're lambs. Did you notice that? It's kind of key to the whole metaphor. Now, you might think sheep are cute and fuzzy. I know a lot of people do. I want to debunk that deeply misguided mythology right now. Because I'm a McLeod of the Clan McLeod, and my people are sheep herders. <laughs> my uncle Ian was a shepherd on the island of Lewis in the northwest of Scotland. And I spent a summer with my cousins on Lewis, and my uncle Ian used to shake his head and call his sheep completely clueless. That's what he called them. And by that, he meant that they were confused bewildered, perplexed, lost, and puzzled. We love our pets, right? We have a dog named Pepper. We love her. She cuddles with us on the couch. Now, whether you're a dog person or a cat person, these creatures give us affection. They cuddle with us. Maybe they're loyal even. Dogs more than cats, I understand. Sheep are not, okay? Think about a sheep. 
A sheep is, oh, it's back. <laughs> For those of you who are online, there's a musical accompaniment we hadn't expected this morning, so, which I'm quite enjoying, so, but I don't want... Anyway, the sermon. <laughs> back to the sermon. Sheep only think of filling their bellies. That is a sheep's sole focus. And sheep are scared all the time. So why would you want to be around sheep? Do you relate to what Jesus says here about, and he's saying it to the whole church, not just to Peter, to his invitation to feed his sheep? Are you even interested in sheep, the clueless, the perplexed, the lost? Or are you hot in the pursuit of lions? I think most of us are, right? We're attracted to people who are strong and beautiful and who make us feel strong and beautiful. But the truth is we are all sheep. And God is closest to the humble, to those who know their need. And he sends us to them. This is for all of us, not just for the leaders of the church. Look at Peter. I mean, Peter was the biggest failure in the history of Christianity up to that point, and maybe ever. Who else denied even knowing Jesus three times? And that's why Jesus says this to him, do you love me, three times, to redeem him, to forgive him. And Jesus then sends Peter out, knowing where Peter is headed to his own cross. Jesus says, you will stretch out your hands. And by that, he means that Peter himself was going to be crucified. Jesus says, follow me to all of us. Jesus knows the weakness and the flaws of the church and of every one of us. We are not holy. We're sinners before we're saints. We fail all the time, but he has gone ahead of us. And when he says, follow me, he speaks as the only one who has lived up to the true standard of friendship, the only one who can be the perfect friend to us, the only one who has given his life for us. And so the cross of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of the church. We heard that in our call to worship from Ephesians chapter 2. Thanks to the cross, thanks to the blood of Jesus shed, we can enter into friendship with God and we can receive the friendship that enables the church to be all that we are called to be. We are friends with each other only because Jesus called us friends first and gave everything for us so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could receive his holiness and goodness, and so that through the Holy Spirit, his power would come on us. And we would realize that we are the church built on the foundation of who he is. Every week we've been talking about a practice or a habit that we can adopt um, arising from what we've looked at in the creed. And this week I want to talk about something called worship plus two. So corporate worship takes place on Sunday morning. We can worship individually or in groups during the week, but this is the focal point of our weekly worship as a church. The plus two part is, first of all, receiving from God, receiving from other Christians. And then second of all, feeding the sheep. So it's receiving and it's giving. So I want to ask you, and I'll leave this question with you to ponder, 
How is it right now, outside of your commitment to Sunday mornings at Courtright, that you are with other Christians in our fellowship, receiving their encouragement, receiving God's word, which doesn't just come from reading the Bible individually. It comes from wrestling with it in the circumstances of our lives with other Christians. We call these small groups. That's where it happens the most. And then secondly, how are you feeding his sheep? Are you at a distance from the church or are you actively involved in serving? When you heard the announcement of a new birth this morning, did you think, oh, that's cute? Or did you think, I could make a meal? When you see needs, when you hear them mentioned on Sunday morning, how are you leaning into that? So worship plus two. Think about it. God will meet you as you respond to his call. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the church has a foundation, and it's a foundation that can never be moved, that can never be eroded, that can never be broken. The foundation is you. And so I pray that that even as we recognize the shortcomings of the church today, that you would renew in us a commitment to abide in you, something only you can accomplish. But we know that you invite us to take particular steps. So would you guide us as a congregation and as individuals in that, how we can live up to this high and wonderful calling we have to be your church. In Jesus' name, amen.